Krista and I had an interesting experience about a month ago that started with a casual comment that she made that she was having a hard time syncing her Garmin watch to the app on her phone, which was frustrating for her. She's been training to run a marathon in the fall and being able to keep track of your workout data, your, your pace, your speed, your time, uh, distances, those are, that's important part of a training program. And so she went online to try and figure out how to fix it and discovered that other people were having the same complaints. And then she found the news story that maybe some of you remember hearing about, that Garmin had been a victim of a Russian hacking attack. They had inserted ransomware onto their servers and locked up all of the personal data that Garmin had collected. And they said, you can only have this data back when you pay us $10 million. And so Garmin had shut down all of their systems. That's why nothing was working, which for us was frustrating for Krista, you know, uh, an inconvenience. But as we began to talk about it, we began to realize that the consequences of this are actually quite severe. Garmin GPS data is how professional drivers, like delivery people, actually do their jobs. And without Garmin, they can't do their jobs well. Garmin GPS data is how pilots form flight plans. And they weren't going to be able to navigate unless Garmin, you know, started their systems again. Maybe most significantly, Garmin GPS data can help enemies locate troops and other agents in foreign affairs deployments around the world. People that the government don't want others to know about. All of a sudden, we began to realize that what seemed frustrating and aggravating on the surface actually had even more dire consequences than we had at first considered. It strikes me that that is exactly what Paul is pointing out in the part of the letter to the Galatians that we want to look at today. To remind, Paul has written this letter to these churches that he planted in southern Turkey, what was then the Roman province of Galatia. And after these churches were up and running, Paul moved on and some troublemakers had come into the community and had installed malware in their understanding of the gospel. They had infected their understanding of the good news of Jesus, saying that while Paul had taught that a life with God is something we receive for free by placing our faith in Jesus, that that was only half true. That our life with God also deeply depended on how well we lived by certain religious rules. That if the Galatian Gentile Christians wanted to follow a Jewish Messiah, they had to obey Jewish religious laws like circumcision and Sabbath keeping and dietary food laws, the kosher food laws. That without obeying those religious rules, they couldn't really be God's people. And Paul writes this letter in frustration and aggravation saying, that is not true. Once you say that your life with God depends on faith in Jesus plus adherence to certain religious rules, you have destroyed the whole notion of grace. But in the passage we want to look at today, starting in Galatians 5.15, Paul says the consequences are actually even more severe than that. He says in Galatians 5.15, in a verse that we've kind of skated over until now, he says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed 
by each other. He says it seems to be the case that this debate about whether or not these Galatian churches would accept the idea that religious rule keeping was somehow essential to their life of faith, it wasn't just destroying their experience of grace in Christ. It actually threatened to destroy the community. There were divisions and factions and infighting that had settled into the community because they were contemplating adding religious rule keeping to their life of grace. And the image that Paul uses in this verse is a dire image. He talks about if you bite and devour each other, that word devour means tearing each other to pieces. He says you will eventually destroy or consume each other. The image is of two ferocious wild animals battling each other to become the alpha of the pack. And Paul says, if you allow this ferocity to get out of hand, you're going to bite and tear each other to pieces. You're going to end up destroying each other in the process. This is going to be a battle to the death. What, What Paul is saying is whenever religious rule keeping is allowed to become a part of the essential life of faith, that faith is about putting your life with God is about putting your faith in Jesus and then keeping the rules, that only leads to fighting in the community. In fact, it can destroy relationships, communities, churches, even entire denominations. Because as soon as you say the rules matter, now you need to fight about which rules matter and how to obey the rules, what obedience looks like. And you have to fight about how to enforce the rules and how do you measure who's not living by the rules and how do you punish those who have broken the rules with exacting intolerance. Everything, once religious rule keeping matters in our life with God, now everything has this life or death urgency because if you get this wrong, if you earn God's disapproval by breaking the rules or by keeping the wrong rules or by not keeping some essential rules or not knowing about some rules, if you're trying to impress God with your rule keeping and you fail, eternal consequences may hang in the balance. Paul says it's once you say religious rule keeping matters, you have guaranteed that fighting Dissension, division, factions, all of that is going to enter into your, commu- into your community and will threaten to destroy your entire community. He says the reason is that religious rule keeping is rooted in arrogance. In verse 26, another verse we've skated over to this point, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul says those who are focused on religious rule keeping are actually living in an arrogant self-delusion. The the word conceited means to brag about something when there's really nothing to brag about. Those Those who boast about the religiosity of faith, of how good they are at obeying the religious rules and and imagine that that makes them spiritually mature or spiritually significant in God's eyes, that God is impressed with their religiosity. He says they they are arrogantly self-delusional. And it's those kinds of people who imagine that they're right and everybody else is wrong and that everybody else somehow has an obligation to live up to your vision of what a life of faith looks like because you're getting it right and other people are getting it wrong. You have nothing to learn from the diversity of the community of faith. 
And that kind of arrogance, Paul says, leads, first of all, to provoking. The word means challenging each other to a competition or a contest. It, it leads to getting up into each other's faces. It leads to competitively arguing about whose vision of the life of faith is better or righter or who's better at being God's person than everybody else. It leads to provoking and it leads to envying, looking at other people who have a different vision of what a life of grace looks like and wanting to tear them down because they disagree with you. That arrogance that leads to this competitive fighting for top spot in the community and the envying uh, that maliciously tears the other person down, that's what creates all of the behaviors that we talked about two weeks ago, hatred. Whether you would ever say you hate another person, we never would say that. We'd say, no, I love the other person so much that I'm challenging their sinfulness. The, The hatred that postures itself as being against someone rather than being for them. That whether in your feelings or in your intentions or in your actions is working against the well-being and faith of another person. That kind of hatred, Paul says, manifests itself in polarization, dividing the community into tribes, into groups. Divide, it, it manifests in, in the zealotry of your ideology, this conviction that you're right and everyone else is wrong and rage when people don't agree with you or you don't get your way and self-promotion that shamelessly tries to push yourself to the front so that your vision of faith gets to dominate and the end result is factions and divisions and envy. It's just ugliness in the community. What Paul is saying and what was happening in the Galatian church is that as soon as you abandon grace as the only basis of your life with God, you abandon grace in the way that you deal with each other. Humility of knowing that all you have is a gift of God becomes the arrogance of believing that you are able to accomplish, you know, impressing or uh, earning God's approval for yourself better than everybody else and looking down and judging other people and starting fights and creating division in the community. As soon as you abandon grace with God, You abandon grace within the community. And Paul, in this entire letter, has been fighting for the exclusive basis of grace in our life with God and with each other. And he says, let me me show you what that looks like. Because when you lean into grace with God, what flows is grace in the community. A grace that manifests itself in a gentle helpfulness. It's grace manifesting in a gentle helpfulness. He's going to now paint the opposite picture of what was going on in Galatians. Galatians 6 verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, instead, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, which is everybody, should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Being caught in a sin is probably the most vulnerable position a person can find themselves in within the community of faith, within the church. And Paul says, in that moment, a graceless response would be to respond by provoking 
by challenging the other person, by getting up in their face, by looking down your nose and judging them and their faith as being inferior to yours. It's this arrogant delusion that, my, that everyone has to live up to my standards of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Paul says that that's the graceless response. What if instead we responded in the kind of grace that gently came around the person and put our arm around them and said, brother or sister, can I walk with you so that we both continue to move towards the life that God wants for us? And he says, in that posture of gentle humble or that gentle helpfulness, he says, just be aware that you also can be tempted to slip in the same way or in other ways. And so allow that awareness, not only to protect you from temptation, allow that awareness guide how you respond to somebody else. As Jesus said, do for other people what you wish someone would do for you in the moment when you fall. How do you want someone to come alongside you? Now, in humble gentle helpfulness. Treat someone else in that exact same way. That's what grace looks like. It's not condescension and judging and provoking and challenging. It's it's gently restoring. He gives another example of gentle helpfulness. Verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The word burden in Greek simply is the Greek word for heaviness. It's the heaviness of life that is sometimes too much for people to bear. Whatever, however it comes, whether that's the, the heaviness of the grief of loss or the pain of broken relationships or the oppression and injustice that people experience either individually or systemically. It's the temptation to sin or the trials that come in life, just the stuff that makes life hard. It's poverty and loneliness or mental health or global pandemics or whatever the case may be. Paul says, be aware of the heaviness of other people's lives. I think before falling into sin, he's addressing, provoking. I think when he's talking about carrying people's burdens, he's talking about envying. He says, instead of living a life that envy people who have it better and easier than you, how about you focus your eye to be sensitively aware of the people who have it heavier than you? And then pour all of your energy into figuring out how you can make that heaviness just a little bit lighter for them in the spirit of gentle helpfulness. And he says, when you do that, you'll fulfill the law of Christ, which Mandy reminded us last week is nothing other than the law of love. That's what love looks like. That when someone slips into a sin, we we put our arm around their shoulder and with all the gentleness that comes from the Holy Spirit as a fruit of God's work in our life, we say, let's walk together in this. That when somebody is being crushed under the heaviness of life, we come alongside and say, how can I make this lighter for you? Grace manifests itself in a gentle, humble helpfulness. It also manifests itself in a humble self-awareness. A humble self-awareness. 
Here's what he says in verse 3. This is contrary to the arrogance, the conceit, the self-delusion of thinking you're really something. He says, if anyone thinks they're really something, when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Paul says, instead of arrogantly living with this attitude that we need to be examining everybody else's life to make sure that their faith meets our standards and they're living up to, you know, our level of religiosity. And then when they don't, we judge and condemn them or whatever. Paul says, instead of arrogantly assuming that we're the measure of spirituality, why don't we in humility... Focus our eye on ourselves. Examine ourselves instead of examining everybody else. Instead of asking, are they living up to my standards? Why don't we spend our energy asking the question, am I living up to Jesus' standard by the Spirit? Instead of looking down on the people around you, why don't we gather the people around us and say, hey, can you help me look at my life well? Would you say I am a person of love? Would you say that my life radiates joy? Would you say that when I enter a situation, I make peace instead of conflict or discord? Would you say that I'm endlessly patient, even with difficult people? Would you say that I'm kind? Would you say that I'm good? Would you say that I'm faithful to our relationship? Even when things get hard, would you say that I always treat people gently instead of harshly? Would you say that I manifest self-control or do I tend to fly off the handle or am I impulsive? Instead of, Paul says, making it your business to examine everybody else, how about we examine ourselves? And then we can just celebrate the work that God is doing in our lives without having to compare ourselves to all sorts of other people and figure out who we are better than. I think a life of grace starts with minding our own business. This is what Paul says, for each one should carry their own load. It's kind of a confusing statement because before he says we should carry each other's burdens, we should lift each other's heaviness off their shoulders, but now he says we should carry our own load. And he doesn't deny what he said before. We should restore each other gently. We should be involved in each other's lives. We should be carrying each other's loads. We should, yes, we should be engaged with each other. But Paul reminds us that in the spirit of humble self-awareness, that the thing we are most primarily responsible for is ourselves. That when the grace starts with minding our own business first, taking care of our own spirit and soul, inviting other people to walk with us towards Jesus. And in the humility of knowing how far we have to go, in the humility of knowing just how much we need other people to walk with us towards Christ, that equips us to be people who can, with gentle helpfulness, gently restore another person and carry each other's burdens because we have been reminded of our own need for grace and have experienced it. And then that has empowered us by the Spirit to extend grace to each other and to everyone else. Imagine being a part of that kind of community. 
a community where nobody arrogantly assumes that they're right, that, that their standard of religiosity is the only way to follow Jesus, that they are the measure of, of whether or not people are doing it well in a way that leads to fighting and provoking and envying and divisions and factions and people being against each other in a way that destroys relationships and communities and churches and denominations. Imagine if that were not what people thought about when they thought about the church. Imagine if what people thought about when they thought about the church were people who in humility were receiving grace from each other and slowly walking their way towards Jesus because as the recipients of grace, what overflows from their lives is grace towards each other and everyone. Friends, God is doing that among us. He is making us into that kind of community. And honestly, friends, it is hard to repent of the arrogance. It is hard to repent of the judgmentalness. It is hard to repent of the fighting and divisions and factions. But when we realize that grace that all of us only need grace and that everything that we have is only the gift of God. When our life with God is based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then all we have for each other is the grace that flows by faith from the life of Christ by the Spirit into each other's lives. That's what it looks like to be a community that's built on grace rather than religious rule keeping. Let's pray. God, as it says in the Bible, everything that we have, we have as a gift that you've given, including our life, our health, our hope, our faith, our love, everything. Would you teach us to be people who live in nothing but grace with you so that we can extend nothing but grace to each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.